when we like something, it becomes a part of us. When we like something, we tend to defend it and say it's a good thing because it's us. Anytime we identify with something as us and start to defend it, though, it can lead us down a bad path. It is important to stay philosophically detached from ideas and people so we can keep our minds flexible and willing to say that we are wrong and adapt. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. This month, we will randomly choose four newsletter subscribers to receive three packs of seeds from Pride of the Lion Seeds in Mendocino. Check out their Instagram profile at Pride of the Lion Seeds and request their new catalog of over 150 photo period and auto flower seed varieties. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive the newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire and I'm your host, Shango Los. My guest today is Dan Jimmy, more commonly known in the underground as Full Duplex. Dan is founder and breeder at Gnome Automatics, formerly known as Mandalorian Genetics, an award-winning and exceptionally well-respected line of autoflower seeds. Dan is also co-founder of autoflower.net, the center of the autoflower breeding and cultivation universe since 2010. <laughs> Dan and I are both well-known evangelists of autoflower plants, but today we're going to focus on everything about them that we found dif- find difficult and annoying. Welcome back to Shaping Fire, Dan. Shango, thanks for having me back, man. I really appreciate it. You know, it's kind of funny that we're doing this particular topic since you and I are both known as evangelists for autoflowers. You know, we're we're both, you know, talking up autoflowers all the time. And here we are going to do a show where we're, we're essentially talking trash about autoflowers. Exactly. You know, the, uh, the aspects of what we absolutely don't like about them. You know, we have, like you said, we're both evangelists for the autofire plant. We've seen a massive, you know, wave come across the industry as they're progressing forward. But there's also a lot of things about them that just get rather frustrating. Yeah, no doubt. You know, um, I've grown over over 150 varieties, like like 158 varieties of autoflower, and uh, and I and I tell people they should try them, and I highly recommend them for patients and for people with uh, space constraints. Um, but my gosh, um, I get frustrated just like everybody else with some of the characteristics. So thank you for joining me today so we can talk about all the things we hate. <laughs> Absolutely, dude. I think it's going to be a, a great conversation for people to realize, you know, that even though we love them so much that, you know, like you just said, we get frustrated, we run into problems. And I think it's good to kind of see both sides of that, you know, kind of bring it both to light. 
Right on. So with that, let's start on this list. And that's how we're going to handle the show today. We're just going to go through um, all of these different categories of things that we find frustrating about autoflowers. And what's funny is that as Dan and I were getting ready for this show and we were putting up a list... um, it was really shocking that the list was so long, you know, like just, just looking at it really quick, you know, I can, I think there's like 15 or so here. And uh, it's, it's amazing that something that has got so many downsides or challenges would actually be something that we like so much. So, uh, so let's, let's start right at the top, Dan. So um, since you're the breeder, um, I will, uh, I'll let you start um, with our first one here about seed inconsistency. And um, we're going to talk about both about the seeding inconsistency in one pack and also inconsistent seeds from breeder to breeder. So, so why don't you go ahead and get us started? Sure. Thank you. Um, I appreciate you letting me take off with this. So um, let's just dive right into it. Um, the inconsistent seeds in one pack. I remember coming over to Vimya events uh, back before we had become so close friends and you had made a comment that like, you know, one of the things with autoflowers is when you open up a 10 pack of maybe feminized or regular, it's literally like opening up a pack of Pokemon cards. You have <laughs> no idea what you're going to get. And that was a frustration point for me very early on. And I think it's partly why I went down the rabbit hole so far was because, you know, we're getting these seeds in from Europe. They're being mass produced in warehouses because the majority, like we've talked about in the history of autoflowers, a lot of this really started off in Spain. And when you have such big crops being produced into seed, there's multiple multiple parents from both sides, whether they're being reversed and making feminized seed or they're being, you know, traditionally bred male female there's more than one pollen donor usually in a room and i think that's one of the biggest things that leads to and i know it is from experimentation myself the inconsistency that we see in a three pack to a 10 pack you know yeah and you know it's 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 frustrating for most of us who have spent most of our growing time with photo periods you know you you might have a line of something and there might be three or four or five phenos within the line and so if you're going to get your eight or ten or twelve pack you may see you know two or three or four or all of these different phenos but um you know a, a well-made seed run will will have fewer phenos in it so that um, most everybody who's growing it is getting an example plant that is closer to the intention of the of the breeder but my gosh when you get phenos in um, in autoflower packs you know, sometimes you're lucky to see two of the same pheno in a pack just because they've got so much variety. And that can be uh, incredibly frustrating as um, as a grower, especially if you're growing in small volume, right? If you are growing, uh, you know, just your five or six legal plants in most states and, and, you, and, and, you're, and you really like a particular variety and you're growing it hoping to get a few of that same plant and you either, you either don't get the target pheno that you wanted the one that's you know 
you know, on Instagram, the one that looks incredible or, or like in your case, right? Um, uh, this year I, I grew a lot of your stuff and, and, you know, most of your popular stuff is purple, but then there's like the purple on purple, which takes the great photos. Right. And so right. I grew wanting what I saw in your photographs and, and I was lucky because I got that purple and, um, and I'm assuming that, that, you know, that's because I was running F4s of yours. So, so these were, um, uh, these were seed, this was a seed line that was worked to a degree. So there was less variety of phenos. And that's why, you know, if, if we find somebody who's putting out unworked lines of autoflowers, sometimes they're fun to see all the phenos, but they're, they're, you're just going to get more variety versus a more mature line that like you tend to put out where your plants are, are, are more the same. Um, I understand that, right? Is that right? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the best way I could have, you know, described it myself. You know, I put the work in, you know, we'll use Anvil, for example. I would say it's my most consistent cultivar that I've ever put out. Um, it's been inbred to F8. The first feminization of that line was F7 to F7. That was its first reversal. And even in the offspring of the first reversal, all the fem seeds pretty much came out the same and and by pretty much I'm, I'm not gonna say it was a completely uniform grow or excuse me uniform expression across every one of the seeds that were sold but it was very it was very close and that comes from that consistent working and developing that narrowing down your phenotype you know your phenotypes to pollinate the pollen receivers in the room so if that's either a feminization or a regular you know male female pollination run the idea is matching parents and those matching parents that math and i use that in air quotes has worked out to me to produce something so stable across any seed that cracks from anvil and I, and I guess it's only fair to point out that, um, you know, even though we used your, you as an example and I've grown your seeds and we're friends, um, that there are plenty of breeders out there that are working their lines. You know, this is, this is not a commercial for gnome automatics, right? Even though I'm growing your stuff. Um, the point is, is that if you want to have less variety in your seeds, make sure that you buy from a, um, from a seed producer who cares about decreasing the phenos because there are certainly people who intentionally put out packs that are you know great for hunting you know do your own sift lots of variety um, you know these 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 type of breeder packs uh, are great for their purpose but you know if you're a home grower and you want to grow the plant that's on that's on the Instagram that looks like the picture um, you're definitely going to want to get something um, that has been worked a lot more it just depends on the kinds of uh, the, the kind of experience you're looking for. A hundred percent. You know, there are several other wonderful breeders out here in the in the autoflower realm that put the work in and actually do the testing and produce these generational lines, whether it's just consistently feminizing them for each generation or traditional, you know, selection, male, female, and then feminizing them once they find a nice, you know, group of seeds that are coming out and expressing the same. There are several guys out there with that focus. And one other thing I'd like to touch on about, you mentioned just slightly about like the home grower with the inconsistency and, you know, 
a lot of these states that are legal now, they have a very tight plant count. Some people don't want to invest a lot of money into a big setup. You know, they're not going out and buying your four by four tents and your six and 750 or up to a thousand watt LEDs or HIDs. They're dealing with a very small space. And if you've got inconsistencies in the pack, sure, some of those might stay within a height of, a, a, you know, say a two by two by four, size tent that they're growing in their closet but then there could be a rogue pheno in that pack that literally pushes the light to the top of the tent and they're going to have a bad experience with that you know it's going to turn them off to seeing all this like well there's too much variety how do i control this to keep it you know yielding successfully in my environment yeah very true and also i think it's important to point out too that because the um the lineage of Ruderalis in our scene. I mean, while while it goes back, you know, well over a decade, it doesn't. It, it the Ruderalis lines have not been bred nearly as much as uh, photo periods, right? And so, Correct. not only are you going to get a lot of variety within a pack, generally speaking, um, if we look at the entire pool of seeds, but you're also going to get a lot of variety from breeder to breeder um, because um, with photo periods. Um, a, a newish breeder is generally going to take something that is already popular or reliable or hype and they will, you know, they will, they will make that cross. And so they're starting with really reliable seeds that have got a lot of breeding history and a lot of stability in them to begin with. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, what, what do they say? Uh, shooting the side of a barn, right? It's like really hard to miss when you right. are, when you're breeding things that are already stable in and of themselves and people have been you know uh, breeding them for years whereas there's a whole bunch of wild still in these ruderalis lines and um somebody who is a is a new new to breeding um they very well may not uh have the experience or the time um to get those seeds up to snuff and so you know you might you might find seeds cheaper or they might be given to you by a friend who's just starting out at uh, you know growing autoflowers or breeding autoflowers but uh you know most of the new stuff the the wild isn't um, bred out of it like it is with with many of the photo periods or most of the photo periods that we have access to and so that means that um novice growers are really making novice seeds whereas with photos a novice breeder can make really good seeds on accident right out of the gate and i agree with you 100 percent. and we're starting to see that with the autoflower community too there are a lot of you know people out there who have done the work, who've put in the structure, who have helped build up this cultivar and sang its praises for years and have finally starting to make their way in to being respected as an autoflower breeder because for a long time, I mean, we, we, and we've talked about this, you know, autoflower was a lot of times a joke of the, you know, the cannabis industry. And we're seeing some of these newer breeders coming up and using stuff that's already been built upon all the work. And, brings me to the point that even though they're doing that they're still getting inconsistencies because they're not taking like two seeds from one brand you know two cultivars from one brand and using those to the, for their breeding project they're usually taking something from 
you know, we'll say Mephisto, for example, or and then Night Owl. And I'm just using names just as placeholders here. Um, and then they throw them together, and they're not getting the result that they look for because of that wild nature of the Ruderalis. Everybody's breeding style is still very relatively new. The, the angle of attack is very different in structural-wise of what people are looking for. And I think people still don't quite understand the mechanics of the autoflowering flowering plant. And I think all of that comes into the inconsistency that we're seeing from breeders to breeders um you see the quality stuff come out from guys who've been working them generationally and you start to see some sketch stuff from somebody who's coming up and they're trying to just force it on the community and take hold of the autoflower wave yeah and i actually it's interesting that you would mention mephisto and um, night owl because i would say that those two brands are at the top of um People starting with those who are just starting out wanting to make autoflower seeds because they'll, you know, they'll take, they'll take a, a couple of Mephistos and, and run them against each other or they'll take a Mephisto and, and, you know, pollinate it with something from Daz or, you know, so, something like that. And, um, and you'll see these crosses just because they've got such great reputations. And um, the only reason I wasn't mentioning uh, your brand, Gnome Automatics, is because honestly, your stuff is sold out so fast um, <laughs> until just recently. You know, you've been making uh, you know larger numbers of packs now, and so now they're more available to people who want them. But you know, your 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 first runs like sold out so quickly. You're like, oh yeah, those are already sold out, and like, oh damn. But um, but yeah, I think there's I've seen so many crosses that are uh, one Mephisto against another Mephisto and the person is trying to get um, their favorite qualities out of both and it just seems to be a pretty common place for people to start it does and, I, and again those like I said those were complete placeholders I mean those are two you know Mephisto's been around forever Daz and I have a fantastic relationship I love that guy to death um, and it's you know it's no tack on either one of them it's just an example because like you know, then there are people out there that are trying to build from the ground up. And and so you've got like a multitude of angles of which we do see the inconsistency from breeder to breeder. And you are correct. You know, I'm trying, I, I don't want this to be about a commercial about gnome automatics, even though it would be amazing. But, you know, it's like I do, I have been fortunate now to figure out a few more things with inside my plant counts to make more seed for people because I've, you know, adjusted my process and adapted over the last couple years since things started taking off it's like it was pretty much i had to if i wanted to stay with what i'm doing right now right on so i think we've hit the seed inconsistency part pretty uh pretty sufficiently anything else you want to say there before we move on to the next topic no i think that flowed very well dude like you know we got some some depth in there and give people a good uh i would say a little closer than ten thousand foot view on why they see what they're seeing all right let's talk about light intensity so you know we're all pretty much aware that when you're germinating a uh, seed you you generally want to bring uh you know do so all, uh, under a, a little weaker light than a you know a high caliber 800 or thousand watt light you just want to you know, give it that kind of nursery experience but one of the things that really odd about autoflowers is they really don't like the intensity of light until they are a bit older and um, I have um, uh, I have stunted my plants uh, a variety of times um, because I, I I germinated the seed and and I put it into the tent with a high intensity uh, bios LED light and um 
and it did, it just didn't want to go. It, it was almost like um, uh, the the bright light was too harsh for the youthful nature of the plant, and instead of it sucking up the light and you know growing swiftly, it actually seems to have slowed it. And um, and I suspect that that has been your experience too. Hundred um, percent. I have seen high intensity autists have a a love hate relationship with light intensity and duration. At the early stages, as you were mentioning, like they want a weaker, less intense light to allow them to come up, put their first set of leaves up, and start kind of moving along. And some people may jump the gun if they're running new age LED and dial it up a little bit more or bring it a little bit closer to the plant. And one thing I always suggest is like let the plant to avoid this stunting that's very frustrating because I actually just did it this past run. Again, like two two in a row. Um, I'm learning some, you know, I'm, I'm playing with things. But, like, let that plant grow to the light. Because when it first comes out and it starts germinating, if it needs more light, it's going to tell you it needs more light. It's going to do what I call the ninth inning stretch. It's going to give itself that first set of leaves. And then that main stem is just going to get longer and longer and longer and longer. And if you notice that elongation, then you can dial up that light intensity by, you know, small increments so you don't, inevitably stunt that plant from trying to push 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 and the double-edged sword of that is once they get to that more mature state if you want to help which is going to be our next topic yield you need to make sure that intensity and light hour time is there it's one of the reasons why i um I put in the extra effort to uh, buy a light that actually has got an integrated dimmer. I love that dimmers have evolved for grow lights. And so, you know, when I'm, when I'm starting my autoflowers out, I mean, I, I had to do it the wrong way first, right? I, um, I, I ruined two rounds of seeds before I realized that my full power BIOS light was just like kicking these, these, um, these seedlings asses that they just couldn't handle it. And so right. <clears throat> I, um, I turned down the dimmer so it was, um, um, you know, to about half power and that, that helped a lot. And, and so I turned it up once the, 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 gosh, I don't know the botany botanical name, but the, the, the young leaves, you know, when they, when they grow up tall enough, they're, they're low and then they, they kind of like shrivel up and go away. And, and we, we, we tend to talk about them at that point as being like teenagers, right? That's right. when I turn it up to full blast. Um, because if I turn it up too fast on these small plants, they're all like, nope, we're just going to stay here at three inches forever. Yeah, and that's one of the big things that I've noticed too is like if you turn that thing up too quick, your internodal spacing becomes so stacked that like it's putting all that energy there. It'll impact your side shoot growth. So any kind of side branching that could have been there is going to be impacted because like the nodes sit so closely and you have to you have to maintain that balance between giving it enough to get it started and then that that preteen or teenager stage when okay the plant's sexed we're starting like under a jeweler's loop you can start to see the the sex organs come out i mean we could touch on the botanical terms of that too but for for the conversation like when you see start to see that underneath a, a jeweler's loop and that's when you can start to bring up that intensity because if you bring it up too soon like you said that plant's going to stay at like three maybe four inches tall and pretty much be pissed off at you its entire life. And you're going to get frustrated. You're going to, you know, think that you failed. But we're here trying to tell you that, like, this frustration hurts us all. We all do it. We've all done it. And I still do it to this day. 
And, you know, even with all this, <clears throat> all these complaints we've got, we're still both in love with autoflowers. So it's, it's really oh, just, I'm not yeah, totally. <laughs> it's, it's really just about, um, uh, finding, you know, get, getting into relationship with this new plant that has got different characteristics than we're used to with, with photos. So, so, so our next topic is, is probably the number one thing that people, uh, complain about when it comes to autoflower and, and that's yield. And, um, it's funny, you know, before, uh, before pandemic, when I was traveling to conventions and, um, you know, you know, teaching about autoflowers and kind of banging the autoflower drum, the, you know, the number one, um, you know, question I got or from people was, you know, yeah, but can they grow big? Because we love growing these monster plants. And and I love growing monster plants too. The whole monster plant thing though really did take off with um California's ninety-nine medical plant count where suddenly every single plant had to be a beast and that really strengthened that large plant culture and and they're beautiful and i'm in no way dissing on large plants but really large plants are not really the end all when it comes to choosing a plant because there are a lot of reasons why the size per plant you may actually want it to be smaller say for example um you are doing it in a, in a tent or you're doing it in a small closet kind of a shoebox grow or if um, you need to keep your plants short so that your neighbors can't see them over the fence or if you are a, uh, a patient with poor mobility they're like how the heck are you gonna harvest a 10 12 foot plant when you know your arthritis is so bad you can barely lift your arms above your shoulders right and so right. So, so I guess I guess clearly I, I went right into defensive nature about the yield, but yeah, the problem is is that the plants are small, and sometimes you you may only pull an ounce off of a plant, which you know if you're used to pulling pounds, pulling off an ounce is going to be it's going to feel very lackluster to you. Yeah, it'll feel very unsatisfactory. You know, I think that I agree with you. Big beautiful trees like monster plants are amazing you know what i mean like i'll get on that train i've grown quite a few big ones myself and it's fun to watch but it is like you said it's a ton of work um a lot of the people that you and i deal with are medical patients i try to you know ooze that energy out when i'm you know talking to other podcasts and i'm talking to other people or behind the scenes dms that like you know patient-minded here um you know, it's hard for somebody to climb up a ladder or hang trellis or trim all of that by themselves. I mean, I'm fortunately still physically very, you know, capable, but like when I've got a greenhouse that's got six gigantic plants, it takes me weeks to harvest that alone. And, you know, I can see the deterrent of with autoflowers being smaller and the yields being less than that because that's what we have seen for so long now that it could turn people off to it. But at the same time in the mind, you're still getting an ounce at a minimum for most of your autoflowers these days of your own homegrown flower that you you started from the seed you germinated and you grew it um i would say you know more or not traditional but more modern era autoflowers aren't you know you can have a few mistakes with them and still get more than an ounce but i could see where yield and discrepancy especially from the big farm compared to like a home grower you know a home grower is not going to have the opportunity to grow seven to eight to ten foot tall plants 
Yeah, that's going to be pretty rare. But you know, even though we're talking about yield and how it relates to size, um, in my experience, uh, the the yield per inch of the plant is actually quite good. And um, you know, you might get a small plant, but the amount of flowers you get off that small plant is going to be on par with a photo period plant of that side. And is, has that been your experience as well? Yeah, I mean, I've noticed with autoflowers that bud structures indoor, let me caveat that first, indoor a lot tighter because a, ma- a majority of people are just really starting to grow autoflowers indoors. Um, and with the, you know, the intense light hours, um, you know, 18 or more, I always recommend don't go in length anything lower than 16 or you're going to impact your yield. You know, I have conversations on the regular in different forums about like, well, what if we just 12-12 them? It's like, it's going to impact the yield. And even though this plant may be a foot tall or something like that, the, the flower is basically the entire plant. Like the entire plant puts off flowers in every direction, uh, especially with side branching and things of that nature. So indoor, my experience has been better structure, better yield. Yes. I think that also um, the autoflowers tend to grow their individual flowers together into what many people will describe as either like a baseball bat stock or a or a you know cola the size of your arm you know people will talk about um it's it's very common for a a you know <clears throat> a a a petite autoflower plant that's going to be under three feet to be also be stocky you know it's it's fat it's got a huge primary cola and and so your your weight for space is exactly where you would want it to be and so when we when we talk you know and complain about yield we're really not talking about how much flower per inch we're really only talking about the size of the plant and you know if you if you have got the you know if you're in the kind of situation um you know so instead of growing one big plant grow 3 auto flowers and you're going to get the same yield but you know you're growing three plants instead of one and so there are, there are ways around that um you know if you if you've got strict plant counts and that is something that you are concerned with well then that's not the best solution but a lot of people i know who are are growing for themselves and growing auto flowers they're just growing them on their deck and whether or not there are five plants on their deck or 10 plants on their deck um doesn't really matter to a lot of folks yeah it doesn't you know and i mean i see that up a lot up here and i also agree with you too like it's it's it comes back to that space like it if you got three of them in that tent and you've given them an indoor 16 to 18 hours light or more during the day a lot of people run 24 hours across those three plants if you grew you're going to get a great yield if you compare to growing one large plant inside that single space area you know, it's, it's kind of going to balance its way out. I mean, sure, you got a little bit more plant care to take care of rather than just focusing your energy on one plant, but I think it's kind of a wash between the two. Yeah. So, so now that we've kind of established that, yeah, the plants are smaller, but the yield for the smaller plant is on par with a photo, um, let's uh, finish off this set by talking about terpene profiles. So, oh boy, there's so, <laughs> much, there's so much to say. Why don't, why don't you get us started on this one? So, I mean, I'll come right out and say it. Like I, there's, it's very hard to find 
the terpene profiles that people would consider hype. And people consider hype two different things. It may be either like some kind of cookies or it could be some kind of unique uh, specific terpene profile, whichever it is. But like with Ritoralis, this is one of those nasty things that we're still trying to fight out is the fact that we got a lot of earth, we get a lot of spice, we get a lot of um, pining. Pining. There's a lot of um, like incense, like Nag Champa smell to them, like traditional early on terpenes before we really started, you know, advancing the way photoperiods are. And we talked about earlier that like the photoperiod breeding game has been going on way longer than when the autoflower, the autoflower scene has really come forward. And we're working diligently on trying to improve that. I have expanded my realm into. Um, photo periods that are that have been grown and selected into this area to try to source in some of those new ter- terpene profiles so i can get the sweeter candy smells and so i can get the the stuff that appeal or the gas you know i i gave you a tester this this summer called methane and i finally found two outliers that actually had a traditional fuel smell i'm not going to say like you know straight up gasoline but there was a fuel like diesel-y like petrol smell to these plants and it was shocking to me um and i worked with those two but the terpenes they do need a lot of work and i'll be the first to admit like i uh, there's some of the plants that i have that they don't smell that great but the smoke is fantastic so it's trying to bridge all those gaps so there's some serious work i believe that needs to be done and it's frustrating because it's it takes time yeah, uh, especially on that gas smell, gas fuel, you know, it's very popular right now, but also it's my favorite, right? I still go for that. I mean, I have yet to find, actually, that's not true. I was going to say I have yet to find a terpene I don't like, but that's actually not true. I'm not really a big fan of the burnt rubber aspect that comes out in some skunk lineages. Um, uh, it was startling the first time I tasted burnt rubber out of a plant. I really thought that I had done something drastically wrong with this plant and then i looked it up and i'm like oh this is this is actually a profile that's common but anyway um other than that uh the gas ones are are still pretty rare in autoflowers uh so rare that you know after my 150 some um varieties i've really only found it in one plant and um uh and i must say that i i haven't grown your methane yet your methane is actually one of them that i stunted with too bright of lights already so i need to <laughs> i need to, to take another approach uh with the methane um with my dimmer now installed um but the um, the Humboldt Seed Company Sour Apple that just came out this year, um, uh, they were kind enough to send some seeds my way, and um, uh, that one has got an authentic uh, gas in it. And it's actually paired with a green apple, so it actually makes for a pretty interesting plant, this kind of green Granny Smith apple with, um, with, um, with a fuel taste to it. But, you know, it, if you are... If you're going to autoflowers to replicate the same profiles that you're getting on your photo period plants, the, the, the lines are just not mature enough that you are going to be satisfied. When you approach autoflowers, you, it really will serve you to find out what autoflowers have to say and how do autoflowers like to express themselves and then be happy with that. And, and I'm not saying that everything in autoflowers is watered down, but there are definitely some terpene profiles that are more successful in autoflowers than others. Like we've already said, 
fuel is pretty hard. Um, but, um, if, if you like, like the, 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 um, you know, grape, uh, Jolly Rancher kind of sweetness of candy smells. Oh my gosh, you're gonna, you're gonna love can- the candy uh, uh, possibilities in auto flowers. Um, there's also good bubble gum in auto flowers. Um, certainly there is great, you know, pining, earthy, incense kind of stuff that you've already hit on. But when I first started experimenting with auto flowers, I wanted my auto flower to taste like the similar parent in photo periods. And it's just not really how it works out because not only are you adding this, you know, the ruderalis genetics, which, you know, naturally pretty much just tastes like grass or hay. It's not, it's not a wonderfully tasting plant on its own. Um, but it is the relationship with the terpenes that the breeder brings into the storyline and then has to refine over generations to get them out. And it doesn't mean it, it is, it's a lesser plant than going only photo. It just means that the breeding history of it is so young that they've got a while to go. And there are a lot of really great tasting auto flowers. Um, but you know like like every summer i'll grow my my photo periods and my autos and it's usually the autos that you know have got better terpene profiles because they're more mature lines but here's the thing where i live in the pacific northwest none of those photo period plants can really finish outdoors you know it's pretty rare um for for those plants to to get all of their you know eight to nine and a half weeks to finish and so the question is you know if if we're going to grow it outdoors are we more interested in in growing photo periods that are not going to fully mature and finish or do I want to grow an autoflower that will totally mature and finish and do so conveniently in the beginning of September instead of waiting for October, not finishing and dealing with mold of the photo periods? And, you know, that's, that's a pretty complex answer that most people who just say, you know, autoflowers suck compared to photos. It's like, well, you know, there's a lot of truth to what you're saying, friend, but, but like, where do you? live what are your needs what's your health what's your growing situation you really have to weigh all these different attributes um, before disposing of the idea of autoflowers, um, I just finished a great, uh, purple lemonade. And, um, you know, it's, it's one of the best smelling, most delightful to smoke plants that, uh, that I've ever grown. And it's an autoflower and it, it just wails on so many of the mediocre photo periods that I've grown. But, you know, it was still only three foot. Well, right, you know, and I think I think you hit the nail on the head right there, man. You know, with the with the growth season that we have and the location that we're at, I struggled. I've struggled for three, four years outdoor now to finish some of these photo periods that they look great, they smell great, but there's just not enough time for that maturity. You know, I've grown like wedding cake, and I've grown runts, all this from cuts and cherry uh, cherry OG, and I've had you know the benefit of being shared with of all these different wonderful smelling photo periods. But the problem is they don't get to fully mature, so I don't get to enjoy that full mature profile of that plant. Whereas with my autos, I've already got them down 
dried and in jars while I'm still struggling to fight the rains and the molds and the mildews. So you true. Know? So true. You just described my life, man. <laughs> that is so satisfying to have the autoflowers harvested, dried, and in jars curing and already like sneaking buds out to smoke while the photo periods are still outside in the greenhouse dealing with the sub 50 degree nights, wondering if they're ever going to finish at all. Well, right. Once you know, once we break below fifty-five degrees, you know, photosynthesis really likes to slow down. So you're not only adding in the the combating of the mold, and the mildew. You're you know you're dealing with a long running strain to begin with that runs in eight, nine, ten weeks maybe, and then you deal down with the actual slowing of the metabolism of the plant. So you've you've compounded issues. Whereas you know, autos are done. You know, it's done. It's ready to go. You can smoke them while you're trying to figure out how to finish out your photo period crop. <laughs> so let's see. I've got something else I want to suggest with the terpene profiles of autos. Um, um, and, and, I, and I can't say I know this to be true, but I, but I have seen a lot of circumstantial evidence on my side. And I, I would be curious or I, I, would, I would hasten to say that um, – Autoflowers may have a difficult time holding the same smell that they have while they're flowering. I would say that just about all the autoflowers I have grown, you know, we, we all expect the the flavors of the terpenes to uh, evolve in cure for sure. That's part of what we're trying to do. But with most autoflowers, what I end up taking out of the jar smells very little like the plant did when it was alive. And that can be startling. What do you think? <laughs> it's funny. You know, I expected you to ask me if there was going to be one more thing before we moved on to another subject or something. And you literally stole the, the thought from my head. Oh, huh. I have seen a lot of what I call loss of translation. It will be it'll grow great. I'll get a nice chemically smell or i'll get a nice uh, very pronounced um like cotton candy smell you know or even a very pronounced fuel smell and be like oh man here it is finally and then you do the slow dry you know i do a 60 60 dry cure environment or uh, dry environment where it's 60 degrees and 60 percent rh and try to let those things go as low and slow as possible to maintain the these terpene profiles and i don't know if it is the fact that the plant can't translate it well enough or if they're still so volatile in the genetics and the early of the breeding that they just they're gone by the time they go through the, the drying process so is this could this open up another way that we dry our autos slightly different than the practices we've been using our photo periods in i don't know but i have noticed that loss in translation myself multiple times so i'm like i'm so excited about what it's outside and i've got three or four females that are in a breeding program like finally i've got a, a, a multiple that are bringing this out and like one out of the six may hold on to a tenth of that smell that i smelled on the plant and it's frustrating yeah this is very true i i share that experience and and for me that's one of the reasons why i don't hold on to autoflowers as long as i would um my photo periods i will either you know you know as soon as they're ready to go i will start to smoking them right away start giving them to friends things like that um or what i what i generally do with most of my autos is make hash because that that seems to stabilize it pretty effectively but i don't know what's going in 
end of the plant. I, I don't know if it's, um, you know, a volatile monoterpenes that we're losing right away, or maybe there's something going on with the, you know, the sugars in the plants that it actually cures differently than a photo period does. And, you know, we have, I don't think we, there's any science on any of this yet, which just again speaks to the fact that even though autoflowers have been around, you know, 15, 20 years, that, um, that with the modern autoflowers, we're still just getting to know them. Right. You know, I think we're still getting to know them. I think it's still a learning avenue. And I think there's a lot more that, you know, comes across with the, with the ruderalis genetics than what we think. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. So um, you want to, you have anything else to say about tripping profiles before we, uh, before we wrap up the set? No, uh, I think I'm good. Yeah, right. You definitely grabbed that last thought right out of the brain. So I appreciate <laughs> you bringing that up. <laughs> right on. So we're going to go ahead and take a short break and be right back. You're listening to Shaping Fire. And my guest today is cannabis breeder, Dan Jimmy. There are so many seed banks nowadays that you really have options in who to choose. Not only that, if you pick the wrong seed bank, you could be in for a really sketchy ride. And that's only one of the reasons I recommend Hembra Genetics Collection to my friends and listeners who are looking for a seed bank. That's Hembra, spelled H-E-M-B-R-A. Hembra is not just another seed bank. Hembra is a woman-operated boutique cannabis genetics provider that only sells thoughtfully curated seeds from the top names in cannabis breeding. With over 50 breeders and over 500 strains to choose from, you will certainly find something you'll love. Hembra Genetics has something for everyone with over 350 feminized strains, 200 regular varieties, and over 100 autoflowers to choose from. Names you know you can trust like Humboldt Seed Company, Night Owl, Canarado, In-House Genetics, Fast Buds, and Gnome Automatics. We both know that there are other seed banks who will take your money but have no customer service. I invited Hembra to advertise on Shaping Fire after hearing so many good stories about them from my friends. They have A-plus customer service with lightning-fast response times. In most cases, Helene and Caitlin will get your order out the same day you place it, and you'll usually receive your seeds in just a few days. Most seed banks are simply not this organized or interested in getting your seeds to you this fast. But Hembra cares. You even get free seeds with every order. Helene and Caitlin get it. They have been in the cannabis growing scene for over a decade. So save a few bucks by using this discount code too. Use the code SHAPINGFIRE, all one word, at checkout to save 10% off your order. Buy seeds from good folks who will get you great seeds reliably every time. Visit HembraGenetics.com today. That's Hembra Genetics. One of the reasons why no-till cannabis growing is so valued by farmers is because the mycelium networks in the soil remain established from year to year. And we know these fungal networks are essential because they are the nutrient superhighways that extend far and wide in the substrate to feed your plants. The trouble with growing in new living soils or blended cocoa substrates is that it takes most of the plant's life just to create these mycelium highways. Dynomyco endomycorrhizal fungi inoculant reduces that time and gets your plant eating a wider array of nutrients faster. And it's three times the concentration of the other popular brand in the U.S. at 900 propagules per gram of two fungal species selected specifically for cannabis cultivation. 
Dynomyco is the result of 30 years of research and trials at the Volcani Agriculture Research Institute in Israel. It has also been vigorously trialed by cannabis and food growers across the U.S. Dynomyco is now available at grow shops and on Amazon in the United States. I love using Dynomyco to both speed up the growth of the mycelium networks in the soil, but also as a biostimulant to make clone cuttings more virile. You can see side-by-sides showing the comparative growth on their Instagram at Dynomyco. If you demand reliable growing results and appreciate the importance of an active root zone in creating a thriving plant, I encourage you to check out Dynomyco.com and use the store locator to find out where you can get yours. That's D-Y-N-O-M-Y-C-O dot com. Shaping Fire listeners can get 10% off any size of Dynamico on Amazon or Dynamico.com by using the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, one word, no caps. Whether you are starting with new beds or pots, or if you want to add some zing to tired soil, choose Dynamico to maximize your plant's potential. Dynamico Endomycorrhizal Inoculant. Businesses everywhere are striving to reach people through advertising. We all know, though, that trying to reach a cannabis audience with a quality message is pretty difficult. That's why many people choose to advertise on the Shaping Fire podcast. Advertising on this show allows us time to talk about your product, service, or brand in a way that really lets people know what sets your company apart from others. Bold people who own companies know that getting into relationship with their customers is essential, and that is what we offer. We will explain your service or product, what sets it apart as desirable, and help our audience get in contact with you. It's pretty simple, really. Advertising does not have to be all whiz-bang, smoke, and mirrors. Nowadays, I find that people prefer just to be spoken to calmly, accurately, and with good intentions. If you want to make your own commercial spot well, you can do that, too. During these pandemic days, conventions and cannabis events are pretty poorly attended, but podcast listening is skyrocketing. With a commercial on Shaping Fire, you'll reach your customers in the privacy of their headphones right now, and will continue to reach new listeners as they explore the Shaping Fire back catalog of episodes again and again for years. A spot on Shaping Fire costs less than a printed postcard per person, and the Shaping Fire audience is full of smart cannabis enthusiasts, cultivators, and entrepreneurs who are always curious to learn. Do yourself a solid and contact us today for rates on podcast and Instagram advertising. Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out more. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and my guest today is cannabis breeder, Dan Jimmy. So before the break, we um, hit the first uh, big challenges that we find with autoflowers, seed inconsistency, light intensity, yield, and terpene profiles. And we're going to start off second set with probably the most disappointing and argued about aspect of autoflowers, which is transplanting. And so um, I'll go ahead and, and get this one started for us, Dan. So um, 
Auto flowers are very sensitive to shock. They do not like to have their roots messed with. Um, unlike other plants, uh, where we can, you know, a photo period specifically, where we can, you know, pop them up as we go from, um, you know, the, the germination tray into a one gallon or a, or a, you know, a party cup or something and then up to a five. And if you're going to continue up, you know, you can do that quite easily and, some folks will even say that it helps the roots to um, to mess with the bottoms of them a little bit. While while that is a debatable thing, you know, some people encourage people to actually touch the roots, which is just not something that would be um, recommended uh, with an autoflower because when you touch the roots of autoflowers, um, it absolutely uh, causes them shock and um, uh, retards their growth. And, um, you know, you might change a plant that would have been a three-foot plant into not getting any more than, you know, 10 inches because they're their life cycle is so short, that amount of uh, shock to the root system will never really allow them to fully recover fast enough in time for them to really express themselves through the flower. Um, well, what do you tell people about trans, um, transplanting, Jim? Dan? I typically recommend not doing it. Um, can it be done? Yes. Does it does transplanting um, encourage and promote rapid root growth into the new medium? Yes. But again, with the mechanics of the autoflower, like grow that thing in the final pot. And I've seen, you know, people who can successfully transplant. They've done a good job at it. They don't mess with the roots much. But my my primary recommendation is don't transplant it. You know, started off in a two, a three gallon pot. Cloth pots work the best. They seem to help develop the root system in a manner to where the plant feeds better more frequently and it'll fill those pots. Um, you know, the, there's a lot of controversy on it and, and I understand that. And even in the, and, and that goes either if you're organic or you're in fertigation or you're using salts, like any of the methods, like the only time that I think that you could safely transplant. And not really do massive stress translating to the early triggering of flower on an autoflower is deep water culture. You start it in a smaller basket until the taproot drops below the ba- or in a smaller bucket until the taproot drops into the water, and then put it into the final reservoir. Because typically, those people are starting them in rock wool, you know, rock wool or rapid rooters, and it's, it's surrounded by all the hydrotron. And stuff, so you're really not shocking it because those roots haven't really had the you don't have the opportunity to touch them like you do, say in cocoa or soil or soilless medium. I think the safest transplant method I have ever seen with autos is definitely going to be deep water culture. But I'll bring it back, just like if you do shock that root system, there it translates to lack of recovery for the end and end result plant. It's not going to be able to be as vigorous as it was if you're in there gorilla handing that root ball like don't break up the roots don't sit there and try to you know make the roots a little bit looser because chances are you're going to cause unwanted and unneeded stress to that plant so the only solution that i have found for i will use the term transplanting loosely but a solution 
to not germinate in the pot that I'm going to leave the plant in is actually by using um, some sort of vessel um, to germinate the seed in and then move that vessel to the final pot. And so I'll give you a couple examples. Now, you know, anybody who's been listening to my show for any amount of time knows that I'm not a fan of using peat moss because it is a, um, you know, unrenewable resource when we pull it out of the peat bogs. That said, um, I do still have those little peat moss um, expanding discs that, that that they look like a like a half dollar, like a silver dollar kind of thing. And then when you get them wet, um, you know, they, they grow up to be like an inch and a half tall. Um, well, you know, back before I kind of turned away from Pete, you know, I bought like a 200 pack of those. So they still have them floating around. So I use them to experiment with. And so what I found is I found success with, um, using one of those peat discs and for the water I use compost tea. Um, so it's got, you know, some living nutrition that's in there. And then I will germinate my seed in that peat, um, that, that, that peat disc that it's now expanded. And the time, by the time the first pair of Coddledon leaves have, um, shown themselves on the seedling, that is just about how long it takes for the tap root to reach the bottom of that little plug and and I want to be moving it over to its final pot at that moment. And so while you are technically um you know, repotting it or transplanting it, you're never actually touching the root zone at all. You're really just taking one pot and then putting that pot into a bigger pot. And I have found that to work. And when, when these, um, when these, Heat discs are are all used up. the 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 new strategy that I'll be using is um, uh, there are a lot of um, of these small hemp uh, starter um, containers. Um, they kind of look like um, like the bottom of an egg crate. And um, what I'll do going into the future is I will put soil into one of these like little hemp cups, if you will, and and start the seed in that, and use the same timing and let the let the plant grow through the the fine hemp bottom on on that cup. And so you you get the advantages that you want. Um, from transplanting, meaning that you can start a whole bunch of seeds together in a tray without having to, you know, have that many full size pots. And then you can select the plants that you want to have continue on in their life cycle. But that is one hack that I have found to kind, kind of get around, um, the inconvenience of not being able to transplant. What's, what solutions have you found to work around, work around this, Dan? Um, in the past, what I like to do is double layer. Uh, if I need feel the need to transplant, or if I'm looking for you know uh, transplant shock resistance, is use two solo cups. So you cut the bottom out of one solo cup. You place that cup inside of a solo cup that has its bottom still intact. Fill that with your starting mix or your organic soil or your cocoa, whatever your medium may be, and then germinate that seed in there. 
And then you can allow it to go a little further than what you do as far as like, you know, before like the first true set can really come out, maybe even starting into seeing the second set starting to develop in the center of that plant. And then what you can do is literally remove the outer cup. You have an exposed root ball already. You don't have to pull the plant from a cup and you can set that cup right down into your next pot. And, you know, I see it as called a tiered method because, you know, you have this, you know, slight raised root ball above your main your main pot, but it's also caused a lot less transplant shock in it that, that I've seen. Like it was, it's been the easiest way to move, or it's been the easiest vessel to allow a little bit more growth and move that plant to another pot without the massive transplant shock. I like that idea. That, that sleeve idea is a pretty good idea. You can, but the time that it will take for the root to go down alongside the inside of that first solo cup gives you a lot more time to play with. Whereas these small plugs that I'm thinking about, you know, you really only have a few days. So, so you need to be on your game and you need to be paying attention. Whereas, um, you know, the, the, the height of a solo cup is, is what, you know, at least three times the height. And so it gives you a lot more time to, um, to, you know, respond like, especially like if, if you're not a full-time like grower and, and you've got to go like go to work and stuff. Well, you know, with the, with the smaller plugs, when it's time to move them to the big pots, like they're not going to wait for you. You must do it. Whereas I can imagine with, with your tiered sleeve method, you know, you've got a lot more days to go with. So, so the way I'm picturing it, Dan, your final pot will actually have the white ring of the plastic party cup like like on the surface of the soil throughout the growing cycle well that is that accurate actually a little bit higher because uh, what the, the nice thing about this is it allows you to give that tap root a bigger vertical drop and with that bigger vertical drop you've got the soil that's already around where the, the main plant is growing so that's going to have to be watered through your watering methods too but if you leave it a good you know two and a half three inches above the soil enough to where the the bottom cup or excuse me the bottom container can hold the cup stable and then have that elevated room you're giving yourself that drop and so yeah i usually don't go all the way down in because like in my brain those roots then have to come down out of that cup and then you're losing that top like potential three to four inches of soil in that pot so you kind of want to find the happy medium between the two so where it can take advantage of your entire the entire soil volume in the destination container you know, Dan, I can imagine that there's some people listening who would, um, you know, who who are more visual learners who would really like to see this. Do you happen to have a photograph of your tiered method on your personal Instagram that people could go hunt up? I think I might, and it may be way back. But what I can do is I do know where I can go harvest the pictures because it was a method that I was using for a very long time on the Autoflower Network to help people avoid transplant shock and to grow bigger plants six, seven, eight years ago. You know, um, it was, there's pictures of it all on there. I know there's gentlemen that still on the Instagram today, I still see them running this method that have, you know, trickled over from AFN to move, you know, into the social media platform, Instagram, but I definitely can find some pictures for it and get it on there, like to update that in content. Right on. So if you're if you're interested in seeing a picture of it, um, Dan will have that on his personal Instagram by the time this episode comes out. And so uh, that's a uh, full duplex full duplex underscore AFN. All right. All right. So um, 
so that's pretty much the deal with transplanting. And, you know, um, once you are established in autoflowers and, and you want to start developing methods that you think might work for transplanting, I fully support it. Like we, we, like Dan and I continue saying, we are still in the early, the very early days of autoflowers. And so developing new techniques are great. But from, from Dan and I's pretty vast experience with autoflowers, we have not seen successful ways to um, touch the roots and and startle the plant and then and then still have the plant going uh, you know turning out not well but so we definitely don't recommend it to anybody who's new to autoflowers but hey you know um i've got an open mind i know dan does so if you if you actually develop technique for uh transplanting uh, by all means uh publish that up and and share it with all of us eh? yeah absolutely you know i'm like i said i am not against the transplant idea. I understand why folks do it. If you are new to autoflowers, would I suggest it? No, I wouldn't. You know, get to know the mechanics of the plant and understand what it could potentially do to your future yield and harvest. But if, by all means, I mean, if there's something that you have found out, um, may it be cultivar specific or looking over the plant and understanding that this method has worked for you every single time, I'd love to hear it. Right on. Which brings us to the topic of stunting. And, um, you know, there are so many things that you can do to your plant that would end up causing it to be stunted. I mean, honestly, some of the varieties of autoflowers I have worked with, it's just like, if you look at it wrong, it's going to stunt. And this is a real pain in the ass because, you know, photo periods, they really do seem to be, you know, quite resilient right out of the gates. Um, but autoflowers really do feel like they are looking for an excuse to stunt. And, and I guess for people who are, are unfamiliar with this idea of stunting, um, that's where the plant will, will reach a, p- a point at maybe, um, you know, somewhere between two and eight inches and it will just stall and it'll just, it'll, it'll continue maturing, but it's not putting on any more weight, no more leaf mass. It will eventually, um, flower too, but you know, you'll get one nug on it that is mature and it's it's really a drag especially when you're buying seeds and you know most most of the quality autoflower seeds are you know 15 or 18 dollars per seed so you want to be damn sure that you're not doing anything that um that are causing uh of stunt stunting um uh, dan why don't you run down a quick list of some of the things that you've seen cause stunting on a plant i mean first of all we'll talk about i mean real quick transplant Right, you know, transplanting will definitely cause um, stunting. High light power, high too far, too much intensity. I know that's bouncing back to an earlier subject, but the light intensity um, will cause that. Overwatering, um, if you overwater it, if you're too, you know, excited about growing it, take your time. Remember that you know this is a seedling, and it doesn't require as much water as you think it does. Um, underwatering. If these roots run into dry patches or the bottom of your pot's dry, the sidewalls are dry, and it's only got a core center that's maintained moisture, there's like a happy medium, that'll cause them to stunt as well. Temperatures, uh, cold temperatures can cause them to stunt. I haven't really seen an issue with high temp causing the stunt, but I think that grouping right there would, would be the biggest set of triggers that I've seen regularly 
they're calf stunting. Yep, I agree. And your temperature is a good one to point out too, because you know we're all always so excited to get outdoors during the summer to get our photo seri- our photo period seeds popped and outside, so that we can grow the biggest plants possible for the summer that we get. But you know, since autoflowers are are only going to you know have a life cycle that's you know eighty to well let's say sixty five to hundred days, um, you really don't have to rush going outside. With my photo periods where I live, um, I'm often really tempted to take them outside in May. Um, but in May, you can still easily get nights that are sub 50 degrees and a photo period will handle that no sweat um, especially if you take a moment to harden them off but that is not true of an autoflower if you put an autoflower out in may where i live and we get a you know a couple of those cold um, nights without a really warm day after it um, that that's it they, they, the, the the plant will will be startled and it will never recover from it and um and i have done this i i did this a few years years back to 30 seeds ouch and um of of the 30 seeds that i had outside only two of them continued on and i ended up having to you know start all over again um with with new seeds and that's an expensive error it is and it can be an expensive error especially if you're buying purchasing fems i mean you talked about the about the prices of seeds recently um or just a moment ago, and you know it's, it's going to be frustrating you out there, and some simple mistake like that of not being cautionary, it could cost you to restart everything again, reboot the entire run that you're planning to do. So just try to be. I always suggest people are like take a look at your hardiness zones, read an almanac, take a look. I mean, a lot of your extension offices in the area are going to give you ground temperatures and nighttime temperatures, and just kind of watch that and do your planning for your, you know, your outdoor crop based upon those things. I mean, I've been using that. I mean, my grandfather taught me that eons ago it's like you know we always had a farm farmer's almanac we always had a moon phase calendar and you know he always checked the university's extension offices for ground temperatures air temperatures and everything before planting his 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 garden vegetables so i think we should take the same care in this to avoid that typical environmental stressor stressor also, the general rule of thumb I uh, uh, suggest to people who are new to autoflowers is um, to germinate on June first, because you know for the contiguous U.S. states, there's there's pretty much nowhere that is not going to be safe by June first, and if you start a plant June first, and uh, let's 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 say on the on the low side, let's say you've got a 65 day plant, it'll grow all of June, all of July, and you. Are harvesting, um, you know, the beginning of August. So most of the U.S. is got um, <clears throat> drought then. So it's going to be fantastic for not causing mold in your flowers. But like even a hundred day plant, right? You know, I talk a lot about the lion claw uh, cultivar on this show that I really like. And so that's a hundred days. And so, you know, instead of the middle of August, um, it's going to be the middle of September for that. But that's still um, drought season where I live. And it's still incredibly warm. And it's it's going to be the best warmth of the year where I am for, for finishing a uh, a plant in heat, you know? And so 
So feel free to just, you know, you, you by all means, you should be aware of your almanac just to be more connected with the world around you, and they're fun to look at. But also, if if you are a patient or if you're a home grower who just, like, just wants to get the cannabis and you don't necessarily going to make this like a full-time mental hobby for yourself, feel free to just germinate on June 1st, because I, I can't think of anywhere um, in the continental U.S. that would have a, would have a hard time with that. One other thing I want to point out before we move on from stunting is, um, you know, we get into relationship with these plants. They growing things can be emotional. Um, uh, a lot of us take a lot of pride and ego out of these plants. Um, do not beat up on yourself if you uh, get a plant and it stunts. Like you're not a bad person. You may not have even done anything wrong. Um, some plants. Uh, some autoflowers, even when you treat them perfectly, they still stunt. And this has to do with the seed inconsistency that we started the show with. Some plants just stunt and it's a drag, but like, take it easy on yourself. Like this is, this is part of this. It also, you know, adds some risk when you're deciding to spend $18 on a seed too, because, um, you know, out of, out of, you know, I would say there will be something that's going to stunt out of most packs from from that that you can buy um, for autoflowers, which is one of the reasons why you know going with more established breeders or people who have got more worked lines will be to your advantage um, if if your money is tight and every seed needs to be a home run, um, but. But I also really like growing new seeds from new breeders, so I know, I know that there's going to be some additional stunted plants in there, and you just need to plan for it. So, so if you get a plant that's stunted, you know, figure out what you may have done wrong and use it as a learning experience, but don't throw yourself under the bus about it because it happens to all of us. It absolutely does. And, you know, you bring up something else, too. I did forget to touch on something that's new to me, and we've had a conversation about it, and I've seen it personally, is if you have a cover crop in your pot, if you are an organic grower and you're running a cover crop and say you're not growing in like a traditional bed, you're growing in like 10, maybe 15-gallon pot indoor, and you have a very established, root-robust cover crop, you could potentially drown out the roots development for the auto causing that stunt whereas that root room that root that tap root can't develop properly because the cover crop has just consumed the pot i'm not too, i'm will, not too will, proud to say that's me man we're talking about me i'm that person um so <laughs> so, so, so that's no. that's what happened when i grew your methanes right um uh i had i had a light that was too intense and then i didn't realize until after the fact that my pot was totally root bound not with the plant but with the with my green mulch my cover crop if you will um i i really love using dichondra repens well the dichondra repens had been in that pot since it was it was outdoor this summer and the repens had totally taken over the pot and when i when it was stunted and i took the soil out of the pot to see what was going on the thing was like wall to wall roots of the cover crop and the plant never had a chance well and i wasn't just you know we had had that conversation because i also had that experience uh two seasons ago in my hugel culture bed anything that i had successfully transplanted into my hugel culture bed which has a very dense cover crop of two to three different species of clover 
anything that I direct germinated into that hookah culture bed, they didn't thrive at all. And it was across multiple varieties and not just stuff from myself, but from fellow breeders and friends and, you know, seeds that I have traded. And then anything that got transplanted into that bed that already had a more robust root ball survived that stunning phase. So we, I mean, both of us, it was the thing that we both kind of had an aha moment about, you know, and learning a whole new method of what could potentially cause an autoflower to stunt. Right on. So the next topic we're going to talk about is topping. And I think that you and I have had different experiences around this one, Dan, whereas um, I, de- I do not top my autoflowers. I absolutely top my photo periods uh, when they're indoors, but um, outdoors, um, excuse me, but, but with autoflowers, um, I don't top them because um, they're... I see their life um, cycle to be too short for me to mess with like startling them at all. And when I have topped them, I don't see them um, always uh, develop uh, larger uh, colas on the next set of of branches like I do with photo periods. And so since I don't see that work reliably, I just don't top them at all because I don't want to cause them stress in any way. How about you? I don't top either. Uh my my personal my personal preference is to let that plant go. Um the genetics will speak for themselves, your side branches, especially if you're growing outside, you're having more exposed light, you're getting light all the way around the plant rather than just directly down on the plant. Um and I've never seen the need to top. Now, I do know that there are a lot of guys out there that are very successful at topping. I've seen several plants produce colas that are just as big as what a main cola would have been on, you know, the secondary and third branches, you know, resulting from the hormone shift of the topping. But I think you have to know the cultivar as far as like, is it known to be able to handle the topping? Like, I think that's when it comes back to doing the research and seeing what people have done and successfully done and repeated successfully rather than just taking that photo period mentality to the autoflower and just saying, okay, we're two nodes deep and three nodes deep. I'm going to go ahead and top this thing, give myself, you know, six side branchings or eight side branches or however many you want, depending on where you top it. Um, You know, I think that it's a frustrating point because I know a lot of people that are, have grown photo periods and want to get into autos and they find it as a major deterrent because if they top it, and it's not one that's known to be able to take top. They have your experience where it's just like a bunch of little popcorn all the way around this plant. Yeah, and, and I would go so far as to say that the 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 number of varieties that you can top safely in autoflowers is very low. Um, I wouldn't say that, oh, you know, some do, some don't. You need to do your research. I would say that it is rare to find a plant that can be topped effectively. Um, I know that they exist because I see them on Instagram and friends of mine have done it. And I'm all like, I'll be damned. Like, well, right. actually in my head, I'm like, man, you got lucky. But but like, <laughs> but like, I also have to be open to the possibility that these are also very skilled growers, likely better than me. And they have got a soft touch and the right variety. And, and, and it turned out really well for them. So, so I guess this is kind of like the transplanting things where, um, like, yeah, sometimes you can get away with it. Um, but if, if you don't have seed to lose, seeds to lose, or if you're new, um, 
highly don't recommend it. And the reason why it's in like the dislike category for autoflowers is that I, I, I like to top everything. I think that it's a good strategy overall to control size and to um, create more colas. And so the fact that we can't top autoflowers, um, you know, least yet is annoying to me. It would not surprise me, though, that over the years, as uh, autoflowers get more um, depth of of breeding and the genetics get stronger towards what we want them to do, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if that evolves out of the genetics in the future. I would say so, too. I mean, like you said, soft touch. Uh, I think what it is are the guys that have been growing them as long as I have been growing them. I mean, there's a few new growers out there who have adapted quickly. Everybody has a different skill set. But like, you know, I really think it's it comes back to a soft touch. If you're new to the autoflower game, let it ride. You know, don't go, you know, don't stress yourself out by trying to figure out how to do all these new things while trying to grow a new variety at the same time. And topping is one of those things I would definitely say, don't do it first. Once you understand it, go for it but inevitably it's one thing that i personally again don't do i see it in my don't do not do list as well right on so the next topic we're going to talk about is uh, similar, uh, which is training. And, um, and, I, and I'm pretty much a training novice. Um, I actually am only really learning how to train now as I am developing my scrogging skills indoors. Um, because, you know, pretty much my entire life I've just grown outdoors because I, I really do prefer growing under the sun. But with where I live now, um, I, I, you know, I decided I better learn about growing indoors if I'm going to be able to provide my own medicine reliably, and uh, I'm a big fan of being a self-sufficient cannabis patient. So, so Dan, I'm just going to hand you the mic, and I'm going to say, you know, um, why don't you address the training? Because I know that you've done quite a bit. Yeah, um, the training thing, I think it's a soft touch thing. Uh, it's frustrating too because it can, you know, lead back to stunning. You know, and this this whole set is kind of like, kind of turns back to that. It's it's that touch of like being able to manipulate the plant in a manner that you can increase your yields, but at the same time, having that gentle touch of the training and like manifolding. Um, cause I don't like the word mainlining. It sounds terrible. Um, hmm. manifolding and LST and, you know, both of those come back to actually topping the plant to get those results. If you do feel the need of training, I think LST is going to be your safest bet. Like after it's grown up and you've actually seen sex or just previous to seeing sex on these plants, you know, kind of tie down that main head rather than lopping it off, tie down that main head over to the left gently so you don't break your main stem. Um, and what that will do is it allows that light exposure to come down and those those under smaller branches will come up and start to chase that main top that you have pulled over to the side. Of course, just like any kind of LST or slight train, you know, low stress training um, like that, that head will turn back up towards the light. That's what they do. Uh, just like when we do the, the super cropping outside or we do the trellising on our photo periods outside, we bend those heads down underneath that trellis to expose those lower branches and allow those lower branches to catch those main heads to give us that even canopy. So if you do feel the need to train your autoflowers and you want to learn about it, I, I would say the best method, you know, methodology to go with is an LST rather than straight like cutting the head off of it, pulling, you know, splitting the main stem out to the left and to the right, and then you know, watching it work up from there. Because again, it comes back to the potential stunting, 
And it also comes back to potentially hurting your yields and not giving that plant enough recovery time to actually build structure before it flowers. Right on. So our last topic for uh, this second set is nutrient timing. And this is something that uh, Dan added to the agenda that I had not really considered uh, because he and I approach um, uh, feeding the uh, autoflowers slightly differently. Um, I, I start the plant in a pot that already has its full uh, nutrition amendments um, already in the pot. And so um, all I add to autoflowers during the run myself is just uh, compost teas and, uh, you know, like uh, like KNF related sprays. Um, But I do know that there are people like Dan who um, will sometimes amend um, as you start the 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 flower cycle so so this is kind of your idea dan so so why don't you explain um how why the nutrient timing is is a little more precarious with autoflowers so and i'll caveat this with container size now i typically i'm an or not typically i am an organic grower in the majority of what i do and during the breeding cycles, I'm looking, I'm doing pheno hunting, I'm sifting through a lot of these seeds, and I'm using extremely small pots. And I think this relates a majority to the home grower than anybody else. Again, that's getting into this, they may have one, two gallon pots. They have seen some really nice stuff online. They see that they get big and smaller containers, and they go out and they purchase them and they want to do an organic run. And they buy, there's several brands out there um, that offer pre made you know, soil or soilless mediums that have heavy nutritional value in them. Most autoflowers can make it all the way through. However, I believe that there's also a timing thing too, just like if you're using fertigation. Back when I was growing completely with salts and ProMix HP, as the plant would progress, I would alternate between a bloom, not alternate, excuse me, I would meld a, a grow nutrient into a bloom nutrient And then as that plant progressed into bloom, I'd phase out the actual growth out of it to give an even transition of like the maturity stages of the plant going through. So as she was in veg, she got more of a grow to help the nitrogen levels and things of that nature. Once she became a teenager, you start giving it a little bit more bloom food to feed that that, that bloom cycle that's coming into that plant. And as she's getting more into the sexually mature side of going into flower, it was it's going to need more of that phosphorus and potassium and things of that nature. So you focus more on that when it came back to feeding with salts. And to talk, talk about the top dressing, I do the same thing, is when I notice that plant has got out of its fed stage and it's into its, its pre-flower stage where it's showing its pistols, I know that in two weeks it's going to start raging into its its sexual maturity of the bloom cycle so it's going to potentially need that extra little boost that may not totally be in that soil so if you're doing a dry amendment top dress you need time for the microbial life to break down some of that some of it could be you know available ready with the top dress but there are a lot of other things that need to have a little bit of a breakdown phase and for example just like when we make our own homemade soils we take you know, we'll take a, a base, we add some castings, we add some manures, we add the perlite, the rice hulls, and we may add some, some dry amendments. And one of the things I do is let it sit for like two weeks before I use it. Let all that microbiology get up and alive and ready to go before I introduce my plants to it. So if there's a, if you are an organic grower, even if you're a salt-based grower and you're using 
smaller containers, I believe that this nutrient timing thing is huge. That way, when you're in flower, you're not struggling and you then turn around, you overfeed, then you burn your plant or you harm your yield or you come back to another impactful site of disappointment. And, you know, I just want to make sure that people keep it in mind that the metabolism of these plants is very quick and those nutrient needs can shift on you before you know it. And just be mindful of that. You know, another thing that to point out is that, um, you know, Jeff Lowenfels has talked a lot about the low nutrient needs of of the autoflower plant. Um, unlike you know, like super hungry photo periods, the ruderalis aspect of the autoflower, I really think causes it to need less food throughout the the life cycle in fact i think that when you overfeed them i think that's another quick way to get to stunting right um especially if folks are using um any kind of very readily available nutrient like a like a liquid or something bottled you know whether it's salts or not you know there are there are very bioavailable organic foods as well that just like you know it it takes no effort for the for the microbe life in the soil to um you know, make it accessible to the plant. And so it's, it's kind of like force feeding food really, really quickly. And so, um, don't feel like you need to feed your autoflower plants the same way that you feed a hungry photo period. Um, if you're, if you're just experiencing autoflowers for the first time, um, error on the underfeeding instead of the overfeeding side. Um, and it's also, you know, it kind of turns th- that into an advantage because you, you really d- doesn't take as much nutrition to grow an autoflower plant. For me, I'm a big fan of the, the Kiss Organics uh, nutrient pack for my autoflowers. And, um, you know, I, I will use that mixed with my, my nitrogen of choice, which is dehydrated pig's blood. And, you know, I'll make sure that my soil is amended, germinate that seed, you know, water and other than composting, I'm pretty much done for its its life cycle. Um, but I do tend to be a little more hands off than a lot of folks who like to, you know, feed and poke at the plant. Right, and I will second your opinion. What I use for my top dress is the Kiss Organics Nutrient Pack. No it's kidding. Got everything. Oh, it's no, really absolutely. good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I keep, I've got a big bag, or i got a bucket of it in the garage. Like it's one of the, I mean, I use it. And then if I'm outdoor, I'll use um, Down to Earth All Purpose and Down to Earth BioLive. Those are the three things that I use for my top dress. The All Purpose has got a really broad spectrum of uh, bioavailable, you know, like different biological availabilities and nutrient aspects. And then the BioLive has got an even more increased microbiology in it. And the combination of the two seem to do really, really well outdoor for me. Right on. So anything else that you want to add on nutrient timing before we go to commercial here? No, sir. No, I think um, I appreciate you letting me run with the mic on that. (laughs) Right on. So we're going to take a short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is cannabis breeder Dan Jimmy. And without these advertisers, Shaping Fire would not happen. So please support them and let them know that you heard them on Shaping Fire. For 20 years, Humboldt Seed Company has been family-owned and providing reliable, high-yielding seeds originating in Northern California. 
While the current trend is to slap one super male into a line of hype strains, Humboldt Seed Company continues to breed with precision and care by doing large sifts and back crosses to emphasize the absolute best traits that a line has to offer. This kind of breeding takes time, talent, and space to work. No matter what kind of aroma you are particularly into, Humboldt Seed will likely have something you'll love. If you love fruit, you can choose from banana, mango, apricot, papaya, blueberry, blood orange, melon, and lemons across their various strains. They have all gas, glue, and classic sour diesel lines as well. Of course, there are the Heritage California strains like OG Kush, Jack Hare, and Headband. And their award-winning Blueberry Muffin is one that delights just about everybody's palate, especially when concentrated. Humboldt Seed Company is proud to bring to market the infamous Freak Show Cultivar 2, which has a great THC high, but looks so much like a fern that some folks can't even identify it as cannabis. It's a plant that really needs to be seen to be believed. If you're looking for well-balanced CBD seeds, Humboldt Seed Company can turn you on to CBD strains that actually have flavor, like the dill and pepper terpenes of Willie G's Lebanese Land Race. Whether you are looking for regular, feminized, or autoflowers, Humboldt Seed Company has the gear to make this your best growing cycle ever. Visit HumboldtSeedCompany.com today to check out their line of vigorous genetics, download their catalog, and find out where you can pick them up. You can also check out their Instagram at The Humboldt Seed Company to check out their gorgeous flowers and the extraordinary freak show plant. Humboldt Seed Company. Let them know Shango sent you. Cannabis folks are innovators and problem solvers, and we like to make money. Have you developed a tool, technique, or plant that you want to protect and monetize? You'll likely want legal representation that is experienced, accessible, and shares your values. Plant and Planet Law represents a wide variety of clients who choose to respect the environment while pursuing their business goals. Have you invented a machine or gizmo that you're bringing to market? Did you discover a breakthrough environmentally friendly pesticide or fertilizer formulation that you're about to start selling? Have you bred a cannabis plant with attributes not found anywhere else? Attorney Dale Hunt and his Plant and Planet team have established genetic patents in over 30 countries. Working to help entrepreneurs, scientists throughout the life sciences, Plant and Planet represents environmentally positive clients in cannabis and other botanicals, fungi, water purification, clean energy, emulsions, and medical applications. Plant and Planet helps people protect what they've created. If you are an early stage company with an established idea and are in the process of fundraising, often the investors require intellectual property protections happen at the same time. Plant and Planet can be your sole representation, or they can integrate with your existing legal team and plug in their specialties. Plant and Planet is made of scientists, lawyers with a real passion for cannabis, inventions, and the environment. They have the scientific and legal depth to help you establish patent protections for your great idea. You don't have to go it alone. Friendly, qualified, and honorable legal representation is available to you. Contact Plant and Planet Law today to start the conversation. Email info at plantandplanet.com. That's Plant and Planet Law. Our clients make the planet better. 
After you've caught up on the latest Shaping Fire episodes, do you sometimes wish there was more cannabis education available to learn? Well, we got you. Shaping Fire has a fabulous YouTube channel with content not found on the podcast. When I attend conventions to speak or moderate panels, I always record them and bring the content home for you to watch. The Shango Los YouTube channel has world-class speakers, including Zoe Sigmund's lecture, Understanding Your Endocannabinoid System, Kevin Jodry of Wonderland Nursery talking about breeding cannabis for the best terpene profile, Frenchie Cannoli's Lost Art of the Hashishin presentation, Nicholas Mahmoud on regenerative and polyculture cannabis growing, Dr. Sunil Agarwal on the history of cannabis medicine around the world, Eric Vlosky and Josh Rutherford on solventless extraction, and Jeff Lowenfels on the soil food web. There are several presentations from Dr. Ethan Russo on terpenes and the endocannabinoid system, too. While there, be sure to check out the three 10-part Shaping Fire Sessions series, one with Kevin Jodry, one with Dr. Ethan Russo, and one with Jeff Lowenfels. And even my own presentations on how to approach finding your dream job in cannabis and why we choose cannabis business, even though the risks are so high. As of today, there's over 200 videos that you can check out for free. So go to youtube.com forward slash Shango Los or click on the link in the newsletter. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Los, and my guest today is cannabis breeder, Dan Jimmy. So the big finish, set three. Let us focus on starting with fluffiness of flowers. And, you know, that's interesting because, you know, Autoflowers have got a reputation of being fluffier, but I really think it's important to talk about not only the fact that they are fluffier, but also whether or not you're growing them indoors or outdoors, right? Correct. Yeah. So, so I guess we should handle these individually. So, so I'll do the outdoor part and you do the indoor part. So, so when you're growing outdoor plants, there's something, even though the sun is more intense than your light in, in your, your grow tent or your grow room, um, the relationship between the light and, you know, in the plant is different than the sun and the plant and autoflowers just about everywhere will grow fluffier outdoors. And, you know, the, the, the flowers will look larger than their actual weight. And you kind of have to choose in to embrace that because, um, because it's what you're going to get. And, you know, they, they smell good. They taste good. They look impressive. Um, but they are going to be fluffier, which where I live in the Pacific Northwest, where it's especially humid is actually an advantage because if you've got a fan going, uh, you're less likely to get any kind of a, a mold rot situation, uh, or a, a flower rot situation because they're constantly getting, um, um, you know, dried out in the core of the flower. The downside of it is if somebody is looking for those tight California style photo period nugs, um, this will be, this will have a different, um, different bag appeal than a Photoshop or not Photoshop, a photo period will have. <laughs> what, what do you see with them indoors, Dan? I see, um, them as a very tighter flower the intensity of the light and i believe the length of the light hours that we're giving them causes a different in the more a difference in the morphology of the actual flower itself i see tighter buds i see better um structural wise presenting that bag appeal that we're also used to 
um, just a complete morphology shift than being grown outdoors. And, you know, I really do uh, prefer my autoflowers, how they come out, how they look, being grown indoors. Um, I'm a big fan of sun-grown, and I think that the terpene profiles outdoors are a bit wider because the, the spectrum of light is a lot wider. But now that I have grown autoflowers both outdoors and indoors, I really do prefer the indoor finished product more as far as, like, bag appeal goes it's they're just, they just look sexier and um and I think I, I, I'm unfamiliar with the study, but I've heard people refer to a study around cannabis that suggests that sun-grown plants actually produced more um more leaf leaf weight and so it's going to be more challenging to trim one grown outdoors as well what are your thoughts I agree um, outdoor seems to have like you said that that fluffierness to it than it does indoor. Um, and I think traditionally ruderalis in its its makeup is leafier anyway, but I have seen that increase when it's out underneath the sun. And that's what, and I've seen, again, like I've seen it indoor and I've seen it outdoor, but I see it more so outdoor. Um, and it does make it a little bit more difficult to give it that, um, that Mendo style like cut where it's like trimmed down and, like a Brazilian cut, for lack of a better term, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I prefer, I prefer a little leafier cut. I like to have the sugar leaf there. I think it adds to the flower, but like it does present a little bit more of a challenge when it comes down to trimming. When I caught you uh, talking at the, um, the, um, Camp Ruderalis autoflower cup event, you also, um, were talking about the calyx to leaf ratio. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about that? So I think that is a negative side effect of, the ruderalis um not a bad thing you know what i mean but it is unfortunately part of i've touched on it slightly through this episode of something about the genetic marker of the day neutral coming across it kind of likes likes to hang out together um you know i was growing um i see it as a rural rural trait and my example for that is i've had the recent pleasure of talking with nick from green source gardens about his pinkleberry and what i saw with pinkleberry and Pinkleberry had that mechanic of a higher leaf ratio to the flower ratio on a specific phenotype that I was looking at. It triggered very early into flower. We're talking like at the equinox. And I had a hunch that if I added an heirloom that I could see higher autoflowering results in the F1. And that higher leaf ratio, you know, the leaf to calyx ratio, that higher ratio just some, seems to be there with Ruderalis. It's frustrating. And I'm working to try to select that out of what I'm doing because, like, it seems to be the biggest complaint from farms to home growers is like, okay, so we got a lot of trim, more so than we did bud weight because of the fluffiness we were talking about because most farms traditionally grow them outside. There's not a lot of farms that are growing autoflowers in massive warehouses yet. Right. You know, that, that the, the leaf is so intense on some of these varieties of autoflowers that instead of using scissors, I want to, I want to use like, um, like the, like the razor clippers, like they use on your neck when you get a haircut, you know, like, absolutely. Oh my gosh. It's just so thick with, um, thick with, 
with the leaf the leaves. The other thing that a lot of the um, cultivars will have that um, are are showing a lot of their ruderalis aspects visually because because you know it, it's true some look like Rudy's and some don't and I tend to go towards the ones that don't look like ruderalis because because they've got better bag appeal but a lot of them also um, the the leaves all down the flower especially on the main um, stem will look like they're pointed up. And, and I don't mean when the leaves are praying, right? We all know how on a, on a, on a bright sunny day, when the plant is really happy, it, it, it looks like it's reaching up to the sun and the leaves can kind of like get this gentle, um, crease in them. And, and, you know, we generally refer to that as, as praying. What I mean is that the, 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 the leaf and the flower matter will grow at an upwards angle and it's always reminiscent to me of the throne uh the iron throne on game of thrones um how how they look sharp and they look like they're going up and um it's very it's very dramatic now the smoke is great and the terpene profile is great but that look looks like there's something wrong with the plant to me Having come from photo periods, it just it looks janky, right? It looks like it looks like there's something wrong with this plant. And it does everything we want it to do except for look as expected. And so, you know, I've I've smoked a lot of great stuff that does that, but it is definitely not my preference and and something that I, I generally don't grow a second time. Right. And like earlier on, like this is that's a besides the the straight up pointing, and you know how we were talking about how like you know you may have a few of them indoors and they may not be like larger plants, but they grow real super dense inside. Another issue that makes them look real janky is like once you get done, say you got a nice big fat baseball bat cola or a couple big fat baseball bat colas, and you got it down, it's dried, and you're going through and you're, you're trying to trim it up to get it into the jars and get it separated, and you start separating that flower from the the um the main stem you start to when you pull that flower out you'll notice like the part of the bud that was resting against the actual main stem is kind of off colored and it's a lighter usually a lighter green like if you're growing a purple plant you'll see like reds and like like almost under development deep inside there because of the way that everything with that leaf and the way that that structure is grown is compacted inside there that light can't get in there to mature that part of the part of the flower and that's another aspect like the outside looks great terpenes look fantastic and you start bucking those things down into into jars you're like okay this looks looks a little off but it's completely fine yeah but it it makes you suspicious it It does every single time every single time it makes you suspicious you know and um if it if we had the better the node spacing that we have like with photo periods to where like you have a bud, you have some stretch, you have a bud, you have some stretch. Once they get into flower, those bud sets tend to alternate up the flower and don't typically grow together. Most modern day photo periods anyway. But ruderalis or you know, autoflowers, they still tend to do that without that offset to kind of give that flower its ability to fully develop. And it again, it just kind of looks off. It's completely fine. But visually, to an untrained eye, they'd be like, eh, I don't know if I want anything from that. 
Yeah, it's funny because that is the same attribute that gives people the big colas that they refer to as like baseball bats or your arm, right? So Great. some some people are all like, "Oh, look, it's one big bud. This is awesome." And then and then other people will be like, "Oh, there's no internodal spacing and it's all grown together and and there's janky stuff going on along the stem." Which it's still great smokable flower, but um, it, it looks like it's immature. Exactly, it looks immature, but it un- inevitably is not. the The actual definition of mids, actually, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, down to the point. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. So, the next thing that we're going to talk about is um, soil germination, and. You know, one of the challenges with autoflowers is the, the, the that we don't want to transplant them, right? And so as autoflowers have become more popular, um, it is the common suggestion that you just go ahead and germinate the seed um, in the in the soil of the pot where it's going to finish. And so... Um, while we do have, you know, a fix for this, uh, when I first started growing autoflowers, is it was a super drag because um, it, it it is more challenging to germinate in soil than it is in paper towel or or you know some people hang put it in paper towel and then hang hang the bag on the wall so it's got a uh, orientation to go up, but um, you know it. It's so easy for the soil to dry out. It's so easy for if you're outdoors, some varmint to come and eat that seed. Um, it's it's a real hassle, and and uh, unless you've got a good solution for it, um, it can be a real a real drag. So, but you know, Dan and I, and 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 probably a lot of other autoflower people came to the same solution separately, and uh, we didn't realize that we did the same thing until we were preparing for this show. So, so Dan, why don't you go ahead and explain the, the solution that we like for germinating in the soil? So germinating in the soil, one of the things that I really, really like to do is maintain the moisture kept above, you know, you know, maintain the moisture on the surface level above that seed. And I do a couple things to do that. One of them is I put a little tiny, like nine ounce party cup dome over the central location of where that seed has been planted. A clear one, a clear party cup, not a red one. Correct. Yes. Thank you. Yes. A, a clear, like you're at the high school dance punch cup. Yeah. That's the best way I could describe it. You put that clear cup over it and then you still have, uh, if you're growing in like a two or three gallon pot and you're trying to germinate in that, you still have a large surface area of exposed soil to wind circulation in your room. And soil wicks. So if that soil is, dry, even though you have that party cup over top of that, that soil will dry out around that cup and then tend to leach that moisture from underneath that cup because you can't put the cup down to the depth of where it's going to protect the seed, you know, three to six inches. So what I also do is I layer rice hulls around that cup. So now you've got the seed protected by a micro humidity dome with the clear cup, and then you avoid the moisture wicking and maintain a level uh, moist soil with the rice hulls as a mulch. So the rice hulls protect the large exposed area, the clear cup covers your seed, and usually within three to four days, that seed will pop its head right up out of there. 
And to touch on your, you know, not only do we have to deal with varmints and drying out, we also have to deal with like certain types of insects in said soil too, especially if you're growing in large beds or if you're growing outdoors and you're growing in a garden, you got to worry about what I like to call like the roly polies. You know, they will come through and they will eat your seedling. Slugs, if you don't have, I mean, if especially if you're growing in an organic matter area, slugs absolutely love dead, decaying plant matter and those slugs also like live plants too and i have come out many mornings to missing tops off of these Mm. new seedlings that have come up in like my hugu culture beds or even in the pots that i have around there because the slugs have found them and had a snack yeah i have lived that hell myself Uh, do you do you put uh holes in the top of your uh plastic dome I do not. Um, I keep that dome on there until they break up and they're turning true to the light. Once they turn true to the light, meaning the head is completely pointed up, its catalins are open, the first set starting to develop. I then work the rice hulls in around that base of that main stem and then let it proceed with my my watering schedule. Right on. So so I guess that's slightly different with me. I, uh, I put holes in the top of the cup so that there is a little bit of airflow. It's definitely restricted airflow so that the, I don't lose my moisture inside. Um, but I, I also just want to make sure that it doesn't get too hot under the cup or the humidity spikes too much. So, so, you know, um, you know, try it yourself and, and see what you prefer. Um, also, um, you know, there are lots of things that you can do to creatively not have to buy more plastic, right? Certainly the clear, uh, party cups work. Um, I'm very lucky because of where I live, there is a walnut tree on the property and, um, the, the prior occupants had um, taken all of these one liter clear soda bottles and cut them in half and put them on the branches of the walnut tree to protect the young walnuts from the squirrels who love them. And so I'm not really um, harvesting that walnut tree. And so you know, every spring, the winter winds blow these these one liter plastic bottles um, out of the tree. And so I'll just go and I'll, I will harvest the plastic off the ground. And so what it essentially is, is a, is a one liter clear plastic bottle and cut in half. And so that you can use the top and you can use the bottom as domes for uh, the plant. And so um, the, using the top of the bottle, there's already an air hole, maybe a little bigger than I would want, but it works fine. Um, and then the bottom, I poke a few holes in as well. And so the reason why I'm telling you this is not that I expect that you have a walnut tree at your house, but that if you look around through your recycling and other places that you use plastic in your life, um, chances are you're going to be able to find some plastic I- at your house or your neighborhood that um, you can upcycle into protecting your autoflower seedlings. Absolutely. Upcycling is always a good thing. Right on. So, uh, so yeah, soil germination is a pain in the ass until you get your recipe down. And once you get your recipe down, um, the, the soil germination just, it becomes a non-issue. But when I was starting out, you know, um, it took me, it took me two rounds to realize that I had a problem and then, and then a third, third round to solve it. So there's that. 
Um, so, so the last thing that we're going to hit on here um, is is the making of autoflowers, and I'm mostly going to let Dan to speak to this since he's the he's the breeder here today. Um, but I want I want to point out that you know I am not a breeder. Um, at best, I am a pollen chucker, but I do enjoy taking pollen off of a male plant and putting it on a female plant. And, you know, suddenly, oh, boom, something, something that's a cross of the two plants that I like. Well, when I started getting turned on to autoflowers, I was like, oh, well, I want to make some of my favorite photo periods autoflowers. I'll just, I'll just, you know, you know, put an autoflower and a photo period together. And, um, and that's when I realized, oh, they're not all going to be autoflowers. I'm introducing a new trait that is not usually what I'm doing when I'm just, you know, pollen chucking with photo periods, which are like so easy to make seeds. So Dan, I recognize that this is not a, uh, uh, an autoflower breeding episode, but if you would just give us a nice sketch of what the steps are to breed an autoflower um, to a a photo period so folks can kind of get a picture of what that looks like. And if that is something that tantalizes them, well, then they can start doing their homework. But for most folks, um, they'll just have it in their head and they'll, they'll, they'll realize that, oh, autoflowers are a different animal. So take it away. Absolutely. And thank you. And um, I'll keep it at a, like a 10,000 foot level that you know, like you said, people can choose whether they want to be tantalized by this or if they want to just, you know, leave it to the rest of us to figure out. Um, like you said, and we'll start with that. Photo period to photo period is very simple. When you put a male to a female, and I'm going to talk on, I'm not going to go into feminization. We're going to say pollen donor and recipient. You take a pollen donor for your photo period. You're going to pass it to the female on your photo period. The resulting children are going to be photo period. Now, with that said, there is going to be a mix of genetic expression in that first offspring. That's how the gene code mashes up. You may find some nice stuff. You may have to do another generation. Autoflower to autoflower. If you use a pollen donor and autoflower and you cross it to a female autoflower, 100% of those offspring will be autoflower. You're going to get, again, different types of phenotypical expressions across that first lot, but you're going to have true autoflowering, day-neutral results. When it comes to making your favorite photo, exhibit autoflowering traits, there's a little bit more work involved because you're then dealing with those varying traits that you're seeing express in the resultant offspring or the F1 of the photo period cross auto. And that doesn't matter if it goes male photo to female auto or male auto to female photo. You have to search through that gene pool looking for genetic markers and traits of the ruderalis parent that you introduced to the photo period. So that builds upon you having to search through that set of seeds and then moving to the next generation using a male and a female from that first set of seeds to make the F2. At the F2, your numbers are going to typically increase in your autoflowering expression because the day neutral trait is recessive and you have to bring it out in dominance. And to bring it out in dominance, you have to work the filial generations to bring it out. By F3, you've got a really good autoflowering day neutral trait that's going on in there. And then you can kind of pheno hunt a little bit because you're going to have a, a nice mix of like fast flowering photo periods. You're going to have what 
Some people call super autos, which is a terrible term. Um, it's basically an auto flower or a photo period that's stuck. It has some of the day neutral trait. It can it, it grows up, it matures, it sexes, and then it gets to the stage where I call optimal pollinization. It looks like 80s hairspray styles, like straight sticking out, and then it needs 12-12 to finish its life cycle. That's still not a proper true auto flowering plant that we know them as today. So in that F3 generation, you're going to see a conglomerate of that. And by F3, you could probably find, you know, representations of your photo period parent that you want to progress forward with the autoflowering trait. So by F4, you're kind of honing in a little bit more. And by F5, pretty much everything that you're spitting out of the inbred line is autoflowering. Right on. That's great. So this brings up another aspect that is not pleasurable when it comes to autoflowers, which is, you know, so so often during this um, breeding process, we take clones and and autoflowers do not clone properly because if you think about it, when you clone a plant, your clones are still actually the age of the mother plant, even though they're like these new, cute, young-looking plants. They are actually a plant that has the age of the mother, and and since autoflowers, um, you know, they've got such a short life cycle. If you take a clone. It is probably going to um, immediately flower because it's on the same flowering schedule as the mother plant that you took it from. Now, the reason why I bring this up at this point is because taking clones is a way to um, intentionally... um, I don't know, bank genetics while you are going through the autoflower breed or the, the, the photo period breeding process. But Dan, please tell us about how inconvenient it is when you're trying to breed autoflowers that you can't clone. It's a royal pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'll give you an example. I have been chasing something for probably nine years and I see it out of one line. I never get a matching parent. It's either the male or the female. So not having that clone, I can't hold on to it until I either find the matching male or I find another female that comes up and I can do a reversal on to kind of lock in the specific trait that I'm looking for. It has been elusive to me for almost a decade now, and it's frustrating. And I keep trying for it. I'm not going to give up for it. Um, but it's it, it makes the process complicated. and. Not having that clone also keep you know the the seed to seed identical ability is pretty much gone until you work all these generations to get the homozygous expression to where pretty much all the seeds look the same. You know, with the clone, okay, I can back cross, I can forward cross again, I can reverse to that. You know, you have so many different options, whereas in with the autoflower world. You don't have the ability to hold on to that precious clone that you've been hunting through and you sifted for to find. And it's frustrating, but to me, I appreciate the challenge. You know, it makes me work harder to get to the ending result that I want. Right on. I like that you uh, gave it that nice spin at the end there. <laughs> so it doesn't just seem to be like a bitch only. <laughs> no, it's not a bitch only. It's frustrating as hell. I mean, that's that's the, the straight and you know, narrow of it. But... I also like to turn that into the motivation. It keeps me driving, keeps me doing what I'm doing, because I know eventually it'll show up, but makes you want to work for it. 
It's probably one of the reasons why there's so many phenos in autoflower seeds still too, because isolating these phenos without the ability to clone is is so much more difficult. It is. And and that's something as simple as doing like an S1, what a lot of guys do. It's like they found this amazing female through a sift. And they clone her out, you know, they got a bunch of seeds, they take clones at the mature at a mature state, label them all. And then flower out all these other ones. And then, okay, we can chuck these other five or six, but we like these two. And, you know, I just don't have the ability to do that. And, you know, the ability to have that sitting around and like, okay, now I really want to lock it in and I want to get seeds out to the public. I could turn around, take a clone from one of the other clones, flower it out, reverse it, and then pollinate that same mother locking in that trait, trying to make those seeds a prime example of what that clone only would be. Yeah, there you go. So anyway, so that brings us to the end, Dan, of all of the things that we dislike about autoflowers. Uh, thank you so much for uh, joining me. Well, actually, more than just joining me, you helped me uh, design and put this show together. So uh, you've been you've been involved from the very beginning. So I appreciate your partnership in uh, in making these lists of 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 challenges of autoflowers and then going through them with me today to you know so that we can we can air them out publicly so people can be aware of them and and. And also the ones that we've got some kinds of fixes for, I'm glad that we were able to provide those as well. And uh, we all know that as autoflowers evolve, um, we're going to see more and more of these uh, unsavory attributes get under our control. So thanks so much, dude. And thank you, man. And you know, thank you for giving me the opportunity to sit down and create this list and help build this show so we could get like proper representation of like yeah we're frustrated but here's some fixes and this is what we do and how we handle those fixes and i think it's a very valuable tool and some information for people who are either just getting started or who have been growing them and and are looking for answers and to see that even though i'm you know we're evangelistic about it like i still get frustrated on a regular basis and sometimes open my door and just go start again (laughs) (laughs) right on cool well thank you very much so um if you dear listener um enjoy listening and learning from dan jimmy as much as i do i recommend that you go ahead and you follow him on instagram where you'll be uh, continually entertained with more of his uh, tips and tricks and beautiful flower photos um to do that um you can either just easily go to the shaping fire episode page for this episode and um and all the links are there but you can also go to his instagram at gnome that's g-n-o-m-e underscore automatics so that's gnome underscore automatics. Um, that is uh, his seed company providing uh, autoflower genetics. Um, you can also check out his individual personal Instagram at full duplex underscore AFN. So that's full duplex underscore AFN. Also, this is not Dan's first time on Shaping Fire. He was so kind to join us back on episode 73 um, to go through a history of autoflowers. So if you are um, you know, just getting into autoflowers and falling in love with them, um, I recommend that you check out uh, that history of autoflowers covering the last uh, 12 years or so of autoflowers. Um, what most of us are 
they're kind of calling modern autoflowers now um, because there's a lot of interesting history and understanding in that. And then um, I also, uh, since I am uh, active with growing and evangelizing autoflowers, you can see a lot of autoflower photographs and information on on my two Instagrams, the ones for Shaping Fire, the show that you're listening to right now at uh, Shaping Fire, and also my personal one at Shango Lose. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shangolos on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.